Dotnet Rocks episode 844 with guest Rod Adams. Recorded live Friday, January 18th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Hey man, what's up? Oh, well, you know, here we are doing it again. Time for another Geek Out episode. It's another Geek Out episode. This time, uh, I think we're going to start with a better know framework and read a read a comment. Awesome. Just, just to mix it up a little. So let's do that. So today, um, I went looking for other people who would be interested, you know, who, who people listening to the show would be interested in. And I found this guy with a blog, and it's uh, Steve Moradian. And you spell it uh, Steve Moradian, M-O-O-R-A-D-I-A-N.com. And he's got a blog. And this is how he, uh, this is how he introduced himself. Welcome to this narcissistic voyage into the disparate collage of patchwork pursuits that is my existence. Nice. <laughs> Behold a web-based smattering of coding, web design, electric guitar, engineering, faith, and expository excellence. I'm the jovial cynic, the loud discerner, and this is my website. So the guy's a web developer, a .NET developer, C-sharp, VB, VBNet, a whole bunch of other languages. He's also a nuclear engineer. Huh. And he's a guitar player. <laughs> so no wonder you picked him. And a photographer. We got to meet this guy. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So it's a great blog and, uh, you know, just um, just worth checking out if you're interested in this topic. Uh, you know, say hi for us. What do you got, Richard? Uh this is actually an email we got from Jim Feldner uh, about our nuclear power show we did back a month ago, 834, which this show is clearly a revisit of. And he says, Dear Carl and Richard, first let me say how pressed I am with Richard's knowledge of nuclear power. You would think that all that know-how about SQL, low-balancing IT administration, there wouldn't be room to left over to store all that stuff about the principles of atomic theory. I should have known better. Uh, Jim, don't get too excited. I made some mistakes. That's part of why we're doing this show. Mm -hmm. My comment is simply this, and now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Mm -hmm. uh, let it be known that I'm not a scientist, engineer, or anything like that, that nuclear power plants are nothing more than very expensive and very dangerous steam engines. My hope is that in the not-too-distant future, we'll look back on nuclear power plants as a good idea at the time, but their current existence will be comparable to that of 8-track tapes. Mm. I know that the show topic was not alternative power solutions like wind, which we've done, and solar, but I'm really hoping that you guys will have a show on hydro, water, as I think this is where the future really lies. <laughs> if all we need to do to produce steam, to turn turbines, then all you really need is heat and water, and our planet has an abundant amount of each of those naturally. We know that a few miles below the Earth's crust, it's hot, very hot, and the planet is two-thirds water. Why not pull in the water from the oceans and heat it using geothermal sources? It is estimated that more than half the world's population lives within 60 kilometers of the shoreline. Those who live more inland could take advantage of our lakes and rivers. If not steam, then what about the moon's gravity? It has always been, and will likely forevermore be, providing a natural push-pull on our oceans. I live in the Midwest of the U.S., and when I visit a coastal state, I am always in awe when I watch the waves of the ocean crashing onto the beaches. Why not harness the power of these waves? I don't believe you have to make this over complex. Think riverboat paddle wheels connected to a long pier, spinning turbines as the waves rush by. These hydro alternatives are inexpensive, abundant, inexhaustive, and have no adverse side effects. What are we waiting for? I'm sure Richard has already thought about this and knows a bunch of other ways to utilize hydro solutions. I'd love to hear a show regarding what he has to say about it. Thanks well, regards, Jim Feldner. Can I be the first to say thank you, Jim? Uh, you know, we... Um we really appreciate people thinking about this, and those are all really good ideas. Um, however, I think, and, and you, probably what you'll hear from our experts, is that uh, these natural resources represent a small percentage of power that's available, and it's just simply because the cost-to-benefit ratio is so, so uh, high. Well, it's the last paragraph, right? That hydro alternatives are inexpensive, abundant, and inexhaustive with no adverse side effects. And none of those things are true. Yeah. They are expensive. They are relatively rare. 
They, when you manipulate them, you can exhaust them and they have side effects. Mm. Everything does. Mm. So as much as we are doing research into do, using more water power, uh, and there's clearly some tidal power plants already, it's just not that simple or uh, feasible. It's just, they're hard to do. Yeah. Geothermal is an interesting one. And, and, you know, New Zealand, right. where we've been, non-trivial amount of their electricity generated by geothermal. But it is also not inexpensive, not abundant, and is exhaustible. Iceland is a, a country that has uh, good geothermal, and it's because they have a large abundance of natural volcanoes and geysers. But uh, we don't have that. And if you think about the requirements of energy uh, in the United States, it's just more massive than anyone really understands. Well, and there's a lot of subtleties, too. You know, back when we talked to the electricity show, which was more than a year ago now, we talked about how spinning turbines is just not that simple. You have to spin them exactly the right rate. And that takes a very consistent pressure of steam mm. or source of water flow, whatever that water flow may be. Uh, tidal water flows are not consistent. So it's, you can't just turn turbines at any old speed and make it work. You have to have that consistent behavior. Thanks so much for your for your email. I really appreciate you sending it. I actually appreciate you writing it as an email because it was quite long. Mm. Uh, and we didn't even address your comments about nuclear power, but I don't need to. I brought a bigger gun than me today. Mm. Uh, so I am sending a .NET Rocks mug to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write us an email at .NET Rocks at franklins.net or write a comment on the site at .NET Rocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access Pluralsight offers a wide range of courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, everything and anything on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest for this special geek out uh, with a guest. And this is the first geek out we've done with a guest, isn't it? Yeah, I think we've had a couple of folks on before, but this time, you know, this is really about, I think, about Rod, so we, it's going to be a unique show. Yeah. So Rod Adams is a pro-nuclear advocate with extensive small nuclear plant operating experience. He's a former engineer officer of the USS Von Steuben, the founder of Adams Atomic Engines Incorporated, and host and producer of the Atomic Show podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at a-T-O-M-I-C-R-O-D. And welcome, Rod. How are you today, Richard and Carl? Just fine, just fine. Well, thank you for uh, for coming on the show. We were, You were recommended to us. It's a kind of an interesting story how that happened. Yeah, I uh, had one of my uh, listeners to the Atomic Show told me about your uh, Atomic Energy podcast, your nuclear power podcast, and told me how to listen. So I did, and uh, contacted you to offer a few uh, constructive criticisms, perhaps. Excellent. And uh, let's start with uh, Jim's email. Well, one of the things that I'd like to remind Jim is that water power is nothing new. Uh, humans have been using water power for a very long time. Falling water is uh, what powered the early industrial revolution in the United States. There's a good reason why mill towns in New England, and even the, my own, my current hometown were located where they were because there was a great source of falling water. Uh, the problem is that falling water is a very limited uh, resource. As uh, Carl pointed out, it's only available in certain places. Here in uh, Virginia, there were cities that were located along the fall lines of various rivers simply because that was where the, the water would turn things like grist mills or uh spinning wheels for uh, textile factories. Yeah. And uh, the Hoover Dam is probably the biggest success of hydroelectric power in the United States anyway. Would you agree? Powers? Yeah, the Hoover Dam's great. Uh, There's also a number of dams along the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, There's still a lot of hydropower in the Tennessee Valley. Tennessee Valley Authority was uh, very much a hydro uh, start when they... um, first uh, started electrifying the rural areas of the U.S., uh, probably about 6 to 10% of our electricity every year is generated by hydro, and, and the variation is because 
some years are wetter than others. Now, I took a tour of the Hoover Dam and was interested to find the goal of the Hoover Dam was to have it be self-sufficient, to have it generate enough power for its own consumption. And it does that, and it only they I, I can't remember the number, maybe you do, but the amount of energy that they sell or you know export out of the dam is not as big as you'd think. I'm not sure what the Hoover Dam's capacity is, but it is a good source of electricity in a place where you have lots and lots of land mm-hmm. uh, to be- where you know the water can back up behind the dam mm-hmm. and a good bit of uh, annual rainfall. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Brazil's another place where an awful lot of hydroelectricity is used, but the problem that they have is on in years where there's a drought, they have to start curtailing. Uh, their uh, electricity production. Sure. Right. And in, and that's just talking about hydroelectric dams. The idea of tidal power and so forth, I mean, these are still very much experimental technologies because it's hard to capture that energy efficiently. Mm. Sure. And your friend from the Midwest, uh, maybe when he visited the ocean, it was moving a lot. I grew up in South Florida and spent an awful lot of time on the beach. There are many times, many days, when you can go water skiing on the ocean because it's so calm. Right. There's not always energy there, and it's not a good thing to uh, put a large collector, uh, impact the local environment, and then not be able to generate anything. Got idle uh, capital invested, and it takes a huge size of a dam. I think there's one going on in in, uh, Great Britain um, where they're trying to dam the Severn because it has a very large tidal flow, and it's an extremely expensive project. I think it's before we get into nuclear, uh, the the thought that I had was, you know, storage is the issue with all of these, you know, wind power, solar power. If you don't use it while it's being generated, it has to be stored. And now you're talking batteries and things. But, um, you know, the hydrogen revolution was supposed to be starting and we can create hydrogen. The problem and it, the problem is creating and separating that hydrogen out from air or from water requires electrolysis. But, you know, isn't that a, a, a good storage mechanism for um, wind, for power, for tidal, for, you know, any of these alternative energies that need storage? Can the energy that's created be used to generate electricity to do electrolysis to separate uh, hydrogen from its source? Sure, you can use electrolysis to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen and then later combine the hydrogen and oxygen back in the water to produce electricity. But both uh, the separation process and the release process uh, use energy in each direction. There's uh, losses in the form of heat. Um, so you get out, best case, about 60% of the energy you put in. Mm-hmm. So it certainly will allow you to time shift, but you better have an awful lot of extra uh, yeah, to make up for the losses. I, I used to manufacture hydrogen um, uh, on a regular basis using a very reliable power source. Of course, we actually didn't want the hydrogen. We wanted the oxygen. Interesting. So I was on board a submarine, and we needed oxygen to uh, uh, make up for the oxygen that us, us poor humans were consuming. Yeah. What would you do with the hydrogen? Uh, we pumped it overboard. Okay. <laughs> hey, quite coincidentally, today, XKCD's comic... You ever read XKCD? And the, the website is literally X is an X-ray, K is a kilo, C is a Charlie, D is a Delta dot com. I will tell you how small the internet is. That was my feature Friday funny for today. Was the- that's great <laughs> because the and the, and the con- if these are one page comics, very Gary Larson. The guy's a mathematician, and it's called Log Scale, and it happens to be. Fuel energy density, and he's comparing the fuel energy density in megajoules per kilo between sugar, coal, fat, gasoline, and uranium. Yeah, and just read the numbers there, Richard. Yeah, so uh, sugar is 19 megajoules per kilo, coal is 24 megajoules per kilo, although that depends on the kind of coal, uh, 39 uh, for fat megajoules per kilo, and uh, gasoline, 46 megajoules per kilo, which is one of the reasons we still use gasoline, it's a remarkably good storage mechanism, yeah. and uranium, 76 million megajoules per kilo. Huh. I mean, I know that's high, many orders of magnitude higher. It seems that looks like perfect yield out of uranium. Would you agree, Rod? That seems too high. 
No, no, that's that does uh, account for fissioning all of the uranium. Okay. Okay. We do know how to do that. We've done it not in just laboratory scaled experiments. We've done it in demonstration plants. So it's not um, like something like carbon capture and sequestration, which is a fantasy technology. This is real stuff. Okay. So, I mean, and and we get to the point of atomic power, and I'm going to call it that, and I'm not even going to focus on uranium, that when we use fission to generate energy, we are incredibly dense. That's correct. About two million times as energy dense as uh, oil, and that is if you don't include the oxygen that you have to have to make oil release its energy. Right, of mm. course, because uh, in the end, you're just burning the oil. It is oxidation. Yep. Now, most uh, people who are making those comparisons don't have to include the oxygen because it's freely available. But as a former submariner, when we made comparisons between oil and uranium, we did have to include how much oxygen will we have to bring with us to make this thing work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Mm. And you, yeah, you've lived in a very closed circuit environment. It's and it's not easy. A closed circuit environment that was over the course of months, ninety nine point nine percent nuclear powered for everything. Wow. And so, would you use nuclear power largely just to create electricity to do everything else, or is it do you use it to heat? Like, how did it actually work? Uh, we used nuclear reactor to propel the submarine to produce electricity, to uh, use electrolysis to make air from water. Uh, we had the heat from the, uh, actually we used electric heat, but you know the reactor provided all the heat, the air conditioning, fresh water, everything we needed was coming from the reactor. And the core of that reactor was small enough to fit underneath my office desk. Nice. And it lasted for 14 years using 1960 vintage technology. Wow. And it's something we talked about on the first show extensively, that the, one of the biggest concerns I have is that a lot of that research has sort of ground to a halt. Um, there has been a, a lot of research that is available uh, that hasn't been actually commercially deployed, but it's been tested through... Uh, large-scale demonstrations of in, in systems that are what some people say are somewhat too small to be commercialized, but they're in the order of 20 to 30 megawatts of uh, heat uh, generation. So that's a pretty good-sized unit. Sure. But uh, w- we, we definitely have slowed down the development in the United States, but an awful lot of other folks are involved and... Even in the United States, we've continued to learn about operating uh, nuclear plants, both on land and at sea. We've probably got the world's largest contingent of trained nuclear operators, um, partly because of the Navy's program, but we also operate the largest fleet of commercial reactors, 104 of them. Hmm. And where are these commercial, are those being power plants or engines? What what do you mean by 104? 104 uh, large nuclear power plants in the United States, uh, individual reactor units, I should say. There, Some of these sites have two or three uh, reactors on them, but I think there's a total of 63 sites and 104 reactors. Okay, and, and size ranging in what kind of scale? The smallest commercial plants that are still operating today is about 600 megawatts. Uh, the largest are about uh, 1,200 in the United States. And mm-hmm. the largest single site is at Palo Verde uh, in Arizona in a desert uh, outside of Phoenix, which has three 1,200 megawatt units. Now, Palo Verde may soon be overcome by the Vogel site in Georgia, which has two operating units today but has two new units under construction. Wow. And we are building more nuclear reactors again, because it seems like we stopped for a long time. <laughs> we stopped for a very long time, but in uh, Jan- January slash February of 2012, uh, two uh, sites received permission to begin building, the Vogel site in Georgia and the VC Summer site in South Carolina. So we have four 
brand new units that just started in 2012. And we have one other unit, the Watts Bar Unit 2, uh, which is a Tennessee Valley Authority uh, project. It's been under construction since about 1990, but they're really uh, trying to co actually complete that project sometime by about 2016, maybe. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Can we uh, talk about the nuclear show and uh, some of the uh, you know information that we said that we might have gotten wrong? Sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go through and do a, a, a detailed uh, analysis, but there was a couple of times where uh, you all were uh, uh, mixing uh, pieces of the atom. Uh, you were talking about electrons when you really meant neutrons. Right. In one uh, particular case. Uh, Do you remember what that was? I mean, I would I just hate to uh, leave it out there hanging. I think that the, uh, the key is that isotopes um, have a varying number of neutrons. Uh, they all have the same number of electrons and they, for a particular uh, element. Say uranium-235, uranium-238, uranium-232 all have the same number of protons and electrons because they're, uh, those are both matched, protons and electrons, so there's no charge associated with an atom of uranium. But there's a varying number of neutrons in those three isotopes. One of them has, uh, let's see, 138, I can't remember all the numbers now, but one of them has a smaller number of neutrons to add up to uh, a mass of two, 235. One has enough neutrons to add up to a mass of 238. One has enough neutrons to add to a mass of 232. And uh, let's see, another one that was an issue was Breeder reactors uh, have no real relationship with enrichment. There was a discussion about the um, fact that the Iranians are enriching uranium. Mm -hmm. All that means is that they're uh, purifying uranium. Uh, uranium is naturally 99.3% uh, uranium-238, 0.7% uranium-235. But the 235 is a stuff that will fission easily. And so in order to build a reactor using light water, you have to enrich. It's not really enriching. You're actually taking out some 238 so that the resulting uh, material has a higher concentration of 235 than the initial material. Breeder reactors okay. are a technology that allows you to convert the uranium-238 from a fertile material into a fissile material, so it will actually fission as well. So I like to tell people that a breeder reactor is sort of like uh, using kindling to get your fire going and surrounding the kindling, which burns really easily, with a bunch of logs that will burn, but they require some additional heat, maybe to boil off some water that may be in the logs, and, and they burn a lot more slowly than the um, kindling in the middle. 
with uranium, the 235 is a kindling, the 238 is the, the logs that can be burned if you design the reactor properly. Now, normally, power generation reactors, at least in, the North, in North America, are light water reactors. Yep. That, am, I, am I right? That's all of the um, reactors in the lower 48 part of North America are light water reactors. If you go north of the border into Canada, and still in North America, you will find that the reactors up there are heavy water reactors. That's the can-dos. That's right. The Canadians built heavy water reactors because they can be built using natural uranium as the fuel, so they don't require any enrichment. They also chose that path because the can-do reactor uses caladria rather than a very large pressure vessel. The Canadians, when they wanted to go into nuclear power, had no capability to make very large pressure vessels, and they had no capability to enrich uranium, but they still wanted to use uh, emission-free, reliable nuclear energy. So they chose the heavy water reactor. So why use heavy water reactors? Like, why isn't everybody using heavy water reactors? Heavy water is expensive. Uh, it's only really available from places where Electricity is really cheap. Uh, the major source of uh, heavy water in the world is Norway, where they have very inexpensive hydroelectricity because they got lots of rivers and not very many people to use the electricity. Uh, Canada also has a large amount of hydropower and produced their heavy water for their heavy water reactors. Now, this sounds funny because it's like the whole reason you want heavy water is to generate electricity, but you got to use electricity to make the heavy water in the first place. Right, but it's only, like uh, I said, it's a capital expense. Once you've created enough heavy water for your plant, you don't need to have any more. There's no real makeup requirements or very few makeup requirements. Um, and the other issue with heavy water reactors that uh, has caused some amount of resistance around the world is that they do allow you to uh, use natural uranium, and because they're very efficient with their neutrons, they can uh, be used to produce extra uh, materials that can be used to uh, make bombs. Uh, the, there were heavy water reactors available to the Indians. In 1974, they uh, had taken off enough of the plutonium pl produced in the heavy water reactor to create a bomb. Now, I personally don't think that's uh, a, a huge uh, disadvantage, um, but it is one. So there's an interesting double whammy here because the U.S. had uranium enrichment facilities, arguably to make weaponry, and then used that to be able to make light water reactors. The, Amer the Canadians who didn't have enrichment facilities because they weren't making nuclear weapons used heavy water reactors, but their byproduct is plutonium, which is awfully good for bombs. It's, it's good for bombs, but it's not easy to get to, um, and you have to be very focused on making bombs, which the Indians were very right. focused on uh, having the capability to make bombs. They had very good reasons to. Not only are they always been felt threatened by the Pakistanis. They've also felt threatened by having China uh, right next door. And in the 1960s, early 1970s, there was an awful lot of conflict uh, over the borders between India and China. Sure. And, and when you're talking about, you know, the, the, the byproduct is plutonium, it's like less than 1% plutonium, but that's still a lot more plutonium than you get anywhere else. Right. And plutonium is actually from my point of view, a very good fuel material. It uh, works just about as well as uranium-235 in a reactor. It supports a fission chain reaction and produces a lot of heat. One other thing I wanted to go back, your guest who kind of uh, poo-pooed nuclear as just another way to uh, produce steam, I like to remind people that right now the world burns about six to seven billion tons of coal, almost all of it is simply to produce steam. Right. So having nuclear fission producing steam is a good thing for the environment because when you use fission, you don't produce any of the polluting uh, gases that burning coal po 
produces. But we do have this issue around nuclear waste. Well, that's what some people call it. <laughs> well, and, it, and I, I thought I alluded to this in the show, but maybe you could drill in further. Because it seems like the U.S. has a tougher time with nuclear waste than, say, Germany used to, now that even though Germany's trying to phase out of nuclear power. Well, the U.S. has, um, I believe, a tremendous resource uh, for the future that we uh, right now call nuclear waste in some uh, people's minds. Other people are calling it used nuclear fuel because what we take out of a light water reactor has only consumed about 5% of the initial potential energy. Uh, right. We can reuse that material and recycle it into future uh, nuclear reactors, particularly if we move towards a higher conversion ratio, perhaps even a breeder reactor uh, technology, which we know how to do. Um, we moved away from that recycling and breeder reactors in the 1970s, Amazingly enough, during a time when we were very concerned about uh, long-term energy supplies between two oil crises, we had a president who sold himself to the public as a nuclear expert who told us all we should be afraid of nuclear proliferation. Right. right. What he didn't tell the public was he had never, ever set foot on a nuclear-powered submarine, um, although he claimed to be a nuclear engineer in the Navy. Weird. Yeah, Jimmy Carter actually resigned his commission in October of 1953. And you can prove that by any historical reference you want, his library, whatever. Mm -hmm. The very first nuclear-powered submarine did not go to sea until January 17, 1955, 58 years ago yesterday. Wow, weird. Hey, Richard, guess what time it is? Yeah, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's a happy, happy time. We give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Today's winner is Christian Hold Magard from Denmark. Congratulations, Christian. Golf clap for you, sir. And a DevCraft Complete Collection is on its way to you. That's uh, everything Telerik does in one box. Telerik, of course, our major sponsor. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. One member every show wins something, usually a Telerik uh, DevCraft Complete Collection. But we have other things to give away, including $5,000 worth of technology every December. And uh, it's a tradition on .NET Rocks that we ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, Rod, what would it be? What would you get? Oh, that's a good question. I just bought a brand new laptop, so that, that would take out about 3000 of that. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I bought a, my, my wife just got herself a new 15-inch uh, power book. I'm, a, I'm sorry. I know I'm on .NET Rocks, but I've been a Mac guy since 1987. So. Hey, nothing wrong with that. No, nope. great Lots hardware. of people developing .NET that use Macs, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm also right now looking at a new iMac. Uh, the 27-inch iMac is a, a beautiful machine, particularly when you load it out. Awesome. So on the original Nuclear Geek Out, we talked about smaller reactors, maybe even you know regional or even, dare I say, uh, citywide or even personal reactors uh, as a sort of a future direction that we might go in. What do you think about that, Rod? Well, I've been an advocate of small reactors for a number of years. Um, I actually started a company in 1993 called Adams Atomic Engines with the notion that we need to build reactors uh, for a variety of markets, not just for the large-scale uh, central station power plant market. As a submarine officer, I know how small you can make a reactor, and... Uh, Adams Atomic Engines uh, thought about reactors in a different way. Small reactors have uh, flexibility advantages that you just can't do with a, a single size, one size fits all, extra large reactor. And they're they're safer too. Well, first of all, I, I don't like to say safer because it's hard to get safer than a technology where we've operated for fifty-five years without ever harming anyone. You know, it's a pretty 
hard safety record to beat. Um, that can you really say that? Uh, Without what? harming anyone, I mean, we've certainly had accidents that have caused uh, serious problems. Um, light water reactors, uh, as built in the U.S. and even in uh, Japan, um, have never killed anyone. Uh, the the only well, I, I take that back. There was one small test reactor uh, operated by a fairly low-trained group of people in Idaho Falls, Idaho, in 1961 that uh, did uh, have a fatal accident. Other than that, there's not an example of a light water reactor anywhere in the world uh, resulting in a, a fatal dose of radiation to anybody. So no, and the point being, nobody died at Three Mile Island. It was frightening, but... Certainly people died in Chernobyl. Was that a light water reactor? No. Chernobyl was a graphite-moderated uh, reactor that had uh, water as a working fluid, but not as the moderator. And, and Fukushima, was that a light water reactor? Absolutely, but nobody's died at Fukushima, except two guys who got drowned in a turbine building when the tsunami hit. Although the full impact of Fukushima yeah. is still being analyzed. That's we don't true. Know I, yet. Mean, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it can it's be messy. See. Well, it, it certainly can be messy. Um, there was ra radiation released, radioactive material released from the reactors. Uh, the radioactive material that got released is, although there was a fair amount of iodine, which is very short-lived, eight-day half-life material, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there was also somewhere less than 100 kilograms of cesium-137 and 134. And other than that, all the other material that was in the reactor is still on the site. All right, so let's get back to the original question. Are uh, smaller reactors, uh, let's shall I say, do they produce less waste, you know, a manageable amount of, of waste for a small... Well, smaller reactors have a lot of advantages. They can be made as safe without as much effort as a large reactor. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the reason is that the smaller the core, the, the fuel bundles of the reactor, the, the actual part that gets hot, the smaller that is, the larger the surface-to-volume ratio is and the easier it is to keep it cool. Um, so if you have a very large core, very large reactor, uh, you have to have a lot of uh, cooling flow to keep the center parts from overheating if you lose uh, power and you lose flow. The smaller reactor, because you get a larger surface-to-volume ratio, you have a better chance of having the reactor be able to be cooled by natural circulation, natural convection uh, flows. So, okay. okay. And when you were talking about the, the nuclear power plants on board submarines, I mean, they're quite compact because uh, they have to be. What was the power rating? Of s how big? I can't really say. Okay. Uh, it, they're, they're not, they're uh, probably enough to produce power for a small town. Yeah, they uh, tens of megawatts, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, tens of megawatts. I can say that. All right. I mean, I could go look it up on Wikipedia because I'm sure there's a certain amount of data available there. And I understand, you know, you're in a, in a conflict there. For, from, uh, you don't want to be too exact. Rod, I don't know if you know this, but from the studio, I can look across the river and see uh, General Dynamics electric boat where they make submarines. And some. You know, my, my whole family worked there except for me. And uh, so on a good day, the Navy base is here, and you can see submarines going up and down the river with tugboats. It's just kind of cool to you know, be sitting there and look out the window and, hey, there's a submarine going down the river. I didn't realize you were a neighbor of my daughter and son-in-law. I, I guess I am. My son-in-law is in school in Groton, Connecticut right now. Where in Groton? Avery Point? Uh. Well, he's it's at the Navy submarine base. He's oh, a, a sub base. base. Submarine officers advanced course in Groton, Connecticut. Great. Yeah, I grew up in Mystic, which is right around the corner. I was just there about a month ago. Beautiful place. Yep, sure is. Now the, the submarines are we our smallest submarine that we ever built that was nuclear powered was the uh, little research vessel called the NR One, which the entire submarine only weighed four hundred tons. 
you, you know, rode on the back of another ship to go someplace. It was a deep diver, was involved in a lot of uh, oceanographic research. So here's a silly question for you. If, um, you know, Mars rovers can be powered with nuclear engines and submarines can be powered with nuclear engines, why aren't more vehicles powered with nuclear technology? The challenge you have on a vehicle is that weight is a big deal. Uh, the Mars rover uh, uses a radioactive uh, material that decays away and doesn't have a lot of uh, gamma radiation to worry about. It uses a plutonium-238 uh, fuel source, and it simply is radioactive decay, not uh, uh, atomic fission. Is that it's, so that uh, there's no, you know, you're not going to kill anybody on Mars because there's nobody there, so they're not worried about it? Um, there's various reasons why we don't put uh, critical reactors on uh, the Mars rover, but they're... NASA's working on very small uh, reactors, not just radioactive isotopes, but reactor uh, power sources for the Moon and Mars and others. They, they have made uh, critical reactors that produce electricity that are the size of a kitchen trash can. Wow. I mean, the bigger thing about the RTG, say, on Curiosity, is that it doesn't generate a lot of power. It's only about 100 watts. Yes, because it's just the decay of that uh, plutonium-238. And I, I think Mars rover could, it may be 100, 200 watts, but a 300-watt generator uh, was used on the Cassini. Actually, they had three of them. And the 300-watt generator with plutonium-238 is maybe two feet long and six inches in diameter, uh, pretty fairly healthy in terms of weight probably about 100 yeah i'm looking at the specs here so yeah three 300 watts uh, about 110 pounds each but that's a that's a non-trivial amount of power so I, I guess what you're saying is the size of the reactor required to power say a tractor trailer truck or you know a semi would be too big well you can make a small reactor but then you have to surround it with enough uh, steel, lead, perhaps concrete or water, something to shield the gamma radiation, which, as Rich Carl pointed out in the last show, is very penetrating radiation. Mm -hmm. You need to have thick walls of those materials, which for a land-based reactor is no big deal. For a submarine, it's not a problem because we have plenty of weight uh, carrying cap capacity. Ships mm -hmm. is not a problem. But if you want to put it on a semi-tractor trailer or an automobile, you got a real problem. You yeah, might. Yeah, you're right. Or an aircraft. There was a time when they wanted to make nuclear-powered aircraft. And you probably could do it with today's aircraft technology. The biggest problem they had for the uh, aircraft nuclear propulsion program uh, was that they the material uh, capabilities were much lower, so the highest temperature available in the reactor was much lower, and the, the takeoff and landing weight for aircraft in the 1950s was much lower than the long-range aircraft of today that sometimes fly from New York to Tokyo with a, without stopping for fuel. So may be able to do it, but it would be a big stretch to get there. Yeah. Um, you may be able to do it with locomotive, but the best way to have nuclear-powered locomotives is what France does. You build electric power plants, and you right, right. electrify the railroads. Yeah. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. We, we, we talked about this electricity show that the way our power grid is currently designed, it's really meant to have 
a handful of very large power plants. It, it doesn't work well with many different power plant sources, but we could evolve the grid to have smaller power plants. So you could see a time when there could be a neighborhood class reactor or, or you know, a regional, a, a much smaller regional reactor with a lot less complexity just because the core is smaller. That's true. Um, we Our power grid does have a variety of power plants. Uh, some of the uh, workhorses of the power grid today are older coal plants, 40, 50 years old, that are in the, say, 2 to 500 megawatt capacity range. Um, you know, we do have a lot of places around the country where the population density is not all that great. Uh, right. Tennessee Valley Authority, lots of parts of the Midwest. One of the uh, interesting uh, markets for nuclear power today is going into those areas that are powered by the old coal plants where the owners of the coal plants are saying, you know, people just don't like coal anymore. There's a lot of regulations, a lot of difficulty in sure. uh, these plants. Mm-hmm. They're not worth spending a lot of money to upgrade them. Um, so we need something else. And interestingly enough, nobody ever built gas pipelines to areas where there's good coal facilities. Uh, there was no economic reason to do that. Right. So uh-huh. Those areas can't replace the coal plants by burning natural gas. So I happen to work for a company uh, that is looking at building smaller reactors in the uh, areas where it's currently powered by smaller coal plants. Uh, the B&W M-Power reactor is focused at uh, those kind of markets. We're going to produce roughly uh, 180 megawatt units, but probably put two of them side by side to produce 360 megawatts of electricity, which is considered to be small in the nuclear world, but it's still pretty good size, big enough for a city of perhaps a couple hundred thousand people. Nice. So how often do you need to fuel those? Because you talked about the the submarine reactors for 15 years. Um, the submarine reactor I was on... Uh, in using 1970s vintage technology lasted for 15 years. Our newest ones last for 33 years without refueling. But uh, commercial reactors, it's different operations. We don't run submarines at 100% power all the time. Right. So we don't use all the fuel at the same rate. Um, the reactors that we're looking at will probably be refueled about every four years. Uh, typically, a reactor is refueled between 18 months and 24 months, and they only replace about one-third of the fuel elements for each refueling. And do they buy, Do they try and vary the power production in these kinds of reactors so that at nighttime when there's a lower consumption at city level, they can actually consume less of the fuel? Typically, reactors uh, operate at full power all the time right? Right. because the fuel is really, really cheap, and there's always some demand for electricity. Yeah. Yeah. Other um, sources that use more expensive fuel will typically be the ones to to reduce power when there's less load. But if you move to a power grid like I advocate, which is closer to a French model or even more nuclear than the French model, which is a very high percentage of nuclear energy, you need to have power plants that can respond to the load. People uh, on the web sometimes tell me, well, nuclear plants can't respond to the load. I say, you're talking to a guy who used to operate on a single reactor submarine. If you tell me they can't respond to the load, I will have to disagree. Right. You've yeah. done it. I've, I've changed power rather dramatically, rather quickly, up and down, uh, done inspections, and, yeah. and yeah. what we call the... Uh, in-service inspections for submarines, and I can tell you we can change nuclear fission reactors, can change power as fast as you want them to, as long as you design them, the secondary plant, the the steam plant, properly. Uh, We're running down on time here. Can we talk about some of these more future technologies, stuff like thorium, traveling wave, pebble bed? Do you have opinions around these, Rod? You bet. First of all, all fission is good. That's my opinion. <laughs> fission is the new Make fi- bones about it. Yeah, fission is the new fire, and the, the, these all those reactors have got some really interesting uh, capabilities. Thorium is another uh, actinide that is 
uh, heavy metal that can uh, be made to split and release essentially the same amount of heat per unit as uranium. So it's, again, 2 million times as energy-dense as uranium. One of the advantages that thorium has over uranium is it's actually more abundant. Yeah, but five times more abundant. Yeah. Uh, somewhere about somewhere between three and five. Um, okay. And, and the bigger thing is it's also in different locations than where uranium is, and it has nowhere near as mature a fuel production chain. I mean, we, let's not underestimate how much money and effort has been sunk into digging uranium out of the ground, processing it into fuel, and getting it where it needs to be, and all of that would have to be built for thorium, too. That's correct. Uh, uranium is pretty abundant. Um, matter of fact, I've been involved in a, a local uh, effort. There's a, a guy who lives a little bit less than an hour away from me who happens to own a farm that contains the largest single deposit of uranium in the country. Wow. A million pounds of uranium. But my home state of Virginia has a moratorium on mining uranium. So he's been trying to get permission to, to mine this deposit of uranium. So we got there is plenty of uranium in the world. Australia, which was one of the world's has one of the world's largest proven resources, went for a number of years where they legally limited uh, their uranium producers to just three mines in the whole country. Um, we do have a lot of uranium, but thorium's an interesting opportunity, and it can be used very effectively in a reactor called a molten salt reactor. And the molten salt reactor offers the opportunity to use nearly all of the uh, potential energy. It doesn't throw away the 95% like a light water reactor does. Right. Or doesn't put it aside for future use, I should say. It doesn't. We've never thrown away any nuclear fuel. We just keep storing it. Light water reactors, we don't use all the fuel on the first pass, but we don't throw it away. We've stored it in pools and in dry containers we know exactly where all of it is. It's never entered the environment. It's never hurt anybody. And it doesn't take up a whole lot of space. If you go to a, a nuclear plant that's been operating for 40 years and look out to see where their used fuel is, it takes up the space of a small parking lot. Now, we, you asked me about the traveling wave reactor. Right. That's essentially a slow breeder reactor. It is a reactor designed to consume both the uranium-235 and the uranium-238 without taking the fuel out of the reactor, doing it all inside the reactor, and operating for a very long time on a, a single load of fuel. The people investing in the traveling wave reactor are top-notch folks, Bill Gates, uh, Nathan Mirvold, and they've got a really uh, good team of technologists. I know a few of the engineers on the project. They've got a real shot at, at making a technology that's revolutionary in terms of uh, opening up an unlimited supply of energy to the world. They're probably 10 to 20 years away from their first operating unit. It is a research project. Correct. It's, it is a, 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 a project where they're doing a lot of computer modeling. They haven't actually built anything. Right. Now, you asked about the pebble bed. Um, pebble bed, yeah. The, the reactor design that was the heart of an atom's atomic engine uh, was a pebble bed reactor. And what that is is a reactor where the fuel is in a different form. Instead of uh, being uranium dioxide pellets surrounded by thin tubes of zirconium, it's real tiny particles of uranium surrounded by several layers of uh, pyrolytic graphite, silicon carbide, and another layer of pyrolytic graphite. Uh, those tiny particles, about 10,000 of them, get put into a ball that's roughly the size of a billiard ball. And then you make the reactor by building a container and filling it full of these balls. The Chinese are the only people that are continuing to pursue the pebble bed reactor today. They've got an operating unit at the Tsinghua University called the HTR-10. It's been operating since about 2002, producing 10 megawatts of thermal energy, but just a few weeks ago, I noticed that the Chinese have started a new project in the Shandong province where they're going to build as many as 18 uh, power plants, individual power plants, 
Each of them consists of two pebble bed reactors producing heat for a single steam turbine that will produce about 250 megawatts of electricity. Richard, didn't you say that one of the problems with pebble bed was the dust that's generated by these things? Yeah, I, I read the South Africans were working pretty hard on it. I read a bunch of their documentation after they shut down. And one of the issues they were dealing with was the damage to the spheres by moving them through the, the, uh, the container. Yes, there's, there are a few uh, technical challenges that the pebble beds have had in the past. It's not a new technology. The Germans operated a pebble bed reactor called the AVR from about 1961 to 1986. Chinese have uh, been operating their test reactor, the HDR-10, for about 10 years. They've learned a lot of things about operating the pebble bed. And one of the things that they do differently is the South Africans want to take the gas directly from the reactor and use that gas to turn a turbine. Wow. Because that's helium, I presume. Yes, helium, that's not the only choice. We'll get on that in a second. But the Chinese circulate the helium through the pebble bed and then take the, the hot helium through a steam generator and produce steam. Um, Which really just a, a, a secondary coil so that they can heat water with the hot helium. Right. But because the, the uh, reactors can operate at a much higher temperature than a traditional reactor, they can actually produce uh, steam that's of the same quality as a very modern coal plant, and those reactors can replace the furnaces in a modern coal plant. Nice. My personal analysis is that if the reactors that they're building today work out well, I think the Chinese have a plan to go back and refit some of their dirty coal plants, take out the furnace, and replace their reactors with the pebble bed reactors because the the size matches almost exactly. Cool. Yeah, it's an interesting point, but there is still challenges to solve. Uh, is it more expensive to produce the ball fuel than the rod fuel? It has the potential to be cheaper initially because, as you mentioned, there is a tremendous worldwide capacity. Uh, for producing the the fuel rods of a traditional light water reactor, right, gotten the manufacturing to the point where the the price is pretty low. the The complete cost of commercial nuclear fuel is roughly sixty five cents per million BTU, and that for people that don't talk in million BTUs every day, that's about one-fourth the price of the cheap natural gas that is available in the United States and about less than one-twelfth the cost of liquefied natural gas delivered to Japan right now. Yeah, it gets back to the fact that that atomic fuels are very inexpensive. That's all based on that energy density that we talked about. A very small amount of fuel has a very large amount of power. I've got a a fuel pellet on my desk is my inspiration. It's a traditional light water fuel pellet. It's not a, it's not a real one. It's a sim- simulated fuel pellet. But that fuel pellet, about the size of my pinky finger, the tip of my pinky finger, contains as much energy as a large pickup truck full of coal. Wow. I think that's impressive. That is pretty impressive. Hey, we're just about out of time. Rod, thank you so much. This has been uh, enlightening and, and uh, fantastic. And thanks for setting us straight on a couple of things and opening our eyes to more about uh, nuclear power. I appreciate the opportunity. You guys do a great show, and uh, I always like talking to curious people. Fantastic. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online, Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a toy boy Life is hard